Hey folks, it's Jeff Wenzel from the Woodshed Agency, and you are listening to my podcast called Successfully Funded. Here we go. Let's turn it up. All right, crowdfunders, how's everybody doing out there in crowdfunding land? Everybody doing good, huh? Huh? You guys got your campaigns going? Uh, You're seeing those backers roll in? Um, Hopefully, you guys are having a ton of success out there, um, you know, getting that money that you need to to make your projects a reality. Um, So, uh, coming up on today's episode, uh, I've got a great interview with Josh Hare. Uh, Josh is the um, owner of Hops and Grain Brewery, and they are in Austin, Texas, and they just finished up a round of equity crowdfunding on the platform WeFunder. And the reason I wanted to talk to them is that they had a huge amount of success. And we broke down and deconstructed um, what their strategy was, um, how they approached uh, the campaign, and ultimately what they're doing with the funds now that they've raised something like, I I think they topped out. Um, I think they actually got shut down, frankly, from the SEC um, because they raised so much money. So very intriguing conversation. Um, And we got to, you know, if you're into beer and brewery and that world, um, you know, we we definitely talked some inside baseball from, um, you know, from my brewery and beer knowledge in my life. Um, So Josh and I really deep dove into kind of strategies around that and branding and so on and so forth. So really good conversation. And um, if it's something that you guys are thinking about doing, doing equity crowdfunding, it's definitely not something that you just all of a sudden start and um, you know, just, just, you know, put up a campaign and just go, uh, definitely a lot of, um, uh, you know, marketing around it and planning and getting your, frankly, your ducks in a row before you can do that. So, so it's Monday and we're kicking off a brand new week. I hope everybody out there has had a great weekend. Um, hope everybody out there was, you know, was able to enjoy some of the nice weather, um, and then got to see that big gigantic moon, huh? How about that moon? That was nice looking. What was that called? A blood moon, I think they call that. Um, that was really, really, really cool looking. I uh, got the chance to take the kids out and, and um, you know, do a little outside exploring. Uh, but, but also this weekend, um, Friday night, I had a successful movie night for the neighborhood. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, on a whim, last week, I decided to put on a... I like to put on these events kind of uh, at my house uh, for the community to come. And I um, decided to show a movie on my garage and I invited, I don't know, we probably had 10 families here with all their kids. So a lot of people at the house. Um, but we got to watch um, Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, Little Skeleton Jack, um, uh, which was great. And just a really, really good time. And I, I'd say I, I love having these types of, of, of events where, you know, it's community building. Um, it's, it's people to a chance to get out, shake some hands, meet people, because you just don't know um, where those conversations might be able to go um, down the road. And, and you know, you, you just get that sort of, of sense of community. And I think, you know, growing up, that was something that was really important um, because I come from a small town um, that, you know, it's not that I want to know everybody, but I think it is important to at least you know, know everybody, if that makes sense. You know, I don't need to know all their business, but it is nice to just to just kind of, um, you know, to be friendly and, and you know, keep them around. Uh, keep people around in your lives because it does make things better. So I think the other thing that's been happening is that I think we're going to have an entire week here of, of a lot of reflection. Um, um, we're going to, you're going to see some, uh, a, we're actually in a little bit here, in, in about an hour or so, I'm actually going to be recording another podcast with, um, with Sean and Paul 
uh, where we're going to flip the script a little bit. And I'm going to have Paul actually interview me and Sean about the failures of being an entrepreneur and what that has done to me mentally and physically and just the emotional toll of being an entrepreneur. And I think it's going to be an an intriguing conversation and, and not only just to give you guys a lot of insight into where I come from when I'm um, talking about crowdfunding and why I'm excited about it because you'll be able to hear you know what I've had to do through VC um, but on top of that we're also going to have some you know hopefully you guys are enjoying the new video series that are coming out of me just kind of breaking down in shorter snips, snippets um, you know kind of my philosophies and um, one of the things, and the, and the reason we're kind of going into this inflection mode is, is, I'll be frank with you guys. M- you know, my wife and I, we we are struggling with communication, and we're struggling with with um, some of my choices that I've made in my life, and and the impact that it's had on her and my family of being an entrepreneur, of not heady, having steady income, of um, you know, of of you know, working all hours of the night. I mean, I have. Even at this moment, you know, we've got clients in Australia, the Philippines. We actually have clients actually on every continent besides Africa. So that's the next one we have to get. But um, so that just means that I'm basically always on. And that toll that it's taking is um, uh, is challenging. And, you know, so so kind of, you know, as we're kind of reflecting on this, you know, this whole week's going to kind of have a vibe of around what it truly takes to be an entrepreneur. Because if you're getting into crowdfunding, my gut tells me that that's what's going on behind the scenes. You want to have your own business or you want to get a project off the ground that at some point is sustainable to you and you don't have to go to the nine to five. Um, you know, back to kind of, kind of where my wife and I are, you know, sh- she has been a nine to five person her whole life. She really, really needs that structure. And I've been the... I, I can't even, not even the complete opposite, a complete 180 different, you know, um, uh, totally different vibe, right? I've come from the restaurant world. I come from, you know, my own schedule. I come from, you know, um, you know, just, just this, right? What I'm doing right now, you know, creating this podcast and, and talking to you, the listeners out there, you know, all of the stuff that I work on is pretty, you know, free flowing. And, um, and, and I'll tell you, then on the other side of that, that struggle internally, just personally of, you know, of, of being still disciplined, even though, you know, I could literally just take off today. I could, I could cancel every call, every meeting, just do nothing if I wanted to and just watch TV, but I'm choosing, I choose not to, you know, and, um, you know, so that sort of struggle, it creates communication issues. And, and if you go to the, you know, my blog section, you know, we've got a couple blogs up there that just talk about, you know, what does it really mean for the partner in your life if you go down this route. Because crowdfunding, man, it takes up every minute of your life. I mean, you can act, we have an active campaign right now, the Upstart Game. Go Google that. I think that's a great example. Um, you know, you've got uh, Decal and Ina, you know, they work on this thing every waking minute. Imagine having a family on top of that and imagine having another job and you start getting this, you know, this is the sort of reoccurring sort of vibe that comes out of all the crowdfunding calls all this, is how absolutely daunting it is to, you know, um, to just do all this stuff. You know, the internet has kind of presented the scenario that it's all simple, right? That, hey, everybody's got a Facebook Everybody's got Twitter. You can market anything. You can do whatever you want. Anybody, creating a podcast is literally going into a uh, a music catalog and buying the equipment, right? That's all it is. And then the work happens, you know? Then the work happens of you have to do this all the time. And, you know, sort of 
also some of my, my conversations in terms of, of the video right now of, you know, there's a workaround for everything. There's a, um, you know, you really have to just do the work. It's that simple. It, you can't hire it all out. No, granted, maybe you can if you're a gazillionaire. But, but Paul and I have had, I think, some conversations on here of, of, you know, Paul's got a friend who tried to hire it all out. And yeah, he was funded. You know, he, he funded a, 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 um, a game. It definitely didn't build the right community. It wasn't sustainable. It was just he paid a whole bunch of stuff and you know basically not even broke even at the end of the day. So it really comes down to that excitement level of if you're running a campaign, understanding how much work it, it takes, um, really understanding the sacrifice that not only you're going to be making, but your family's going to be making, your significant other. Um, and I think you know, maybe even coming up, maybe in a future episode, if I can convince my wife to actually just to do this, would be to actually hear from her side of the coin. What it's been like to um, to be around me with two failed startups, and you know, now working with Woodshed Agency, right? This was um, us even creating this company out of GBS, out of a failed one last year. Um, you know that was me kind of going again against the grain because I didn't go out and get that nine to five job, and I didn't. Um, you know, I didn't just, you know, succumb and just, you know, just go get anything. I, I really truly believe that, um, myself and my team, we, we, you know, we do have a skill set that we know crowdfunding inside and out and, and, and we can help people. And I think that's what you've been seeing now over this last year, um, with the, with the projects that's come out and, and kind of with the work, but, you know, but, uh, you know, I have a lot of guilt you know, I feel bad for some of the, you know, I mean, I'll be frank, my wife and I were up late chatting about it last night until one in the morning, I, you know, just discussing this impact that it, that, that I had, that this has had on our life, you know, and, and I don't know, I don't know if I wish that on many people, but for me, I don't, I just, I truly don't know any other way. And that's where I get, I get validation when I hear other people talk about, you know, I have no other way. I don't even, I don't, it's, it's just in my blood to just drive and, 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 um, and, uh, and be successful and, you know, lead people and build a company and, and, and socially be out there and be active and be vulnerable, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you about, uh, you know, my wife and I fighting and, and struggles of life. And, and I, and I think it's important that I'm this open because of how vulnerable crowdfunding is if you go down this rabbit hole. And I don't know if people truly understand that, that if it fails, you know, that's a war that's out in the world. And I hear that all the time where people, you know, I know when I'm talking to people, there's a desperation of like, I really thought this was going to be an answer. I really, truly thought once I get that 10K, this will happen. And then you just realize that you missed a whole bunch of steps to get to that. But that's, you know, it, you know, that's the life of hard knocks, right? So, you know, so it's important, I think, for me to be open, be vulnerable. And I think it's for everybody out there that, that that's hopefully the message you might take from this intro is that you got to be vulnerable. You know, and, and my, I think if you really pull out the conversation or, or pull apart the conversation I just had with Josh from Hops and Grain, you know, listen to how vulnerable he was, you know, to basically put his business plan out online and not be nervous that somebody's going to see it and, and to just trust, you know. Um, I thought it was intriguing too that if, when you when you hear the episode of you know we funder approached him, you know, so he had to take a he had to, he had to, had a trust right he had to 
um, believe. And now he's being rewarded. And I think that's a hard thing for some people to get. Um, And even if you do get it, then you've got to convince the people that are closest to you to get it as well. And more than likely, they probably won't because it's not truly theirs. So, you know, emotional day-to-day. But... You know, I always love the first parts of the week, man. I love kicking off. I love all the energy. I love getting, you know, knocking out my to-dos, getting stuff done, um, you know, talking to the clients, you know, helping them get their dreams coming true and and find the money that they need. So, you know, kicking off a Monday. Yep. So, like I do every time in this conversation, at this point in the conversation is, um, you know, if you like what we're talking about here, if you think you know somebody that would be into um, uh, into the podcast, please, please share this with somebody. Um, you know, send them the iTunes link, or we're over on Stitcher, or you can just go to the website and listen to the to the to the, um, to the podcast from there. But um, we try just trying to get more people out there to hear, um, you know, the the new things going on in crowdfunding and what people are doing to be successful. Also. If you want to dive deeper into these conversations, please join our Slack channel. Um, it's a private group. It's where um, my whole team's on it, myself, Paul and Sean, like I said, and we are, you know, we go deeper, deeper, deeper into crowdfunding. And uh, join that channel. Um, all you got to do is go to the website, click the join our community, and you'll be able to um, to log in and, and be a part of the conversation. But, um, okay, well, let's kick it to my conversation with Josh Hare uh, from Hops and Grain. Um, and we talk about his equity crowdfunding uh, success uh, with the um, platform WeFunder. Josh, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm doing real well. Doing real well. Thanks so much for taking some time to uh, to chat with me, man. I appreciate it. Absolutely, happy to. Awesome. So, so I found you doing some equity crowdfunding, and I wanted to chat a little bit about kind of your company and uh, and then break down how you ended up going down that route for fundraising. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So. I always like to start off these kind of conversations with you maybe kind of telling my listeners, you know, who are you and what you do. Absolutely, yeah. So I am uh, I'm Josh Hare. I'm the, the CEO and founder at Hops and Grain Brewing. Um, you know, owning a brewery is uh, a multi-hat affair, so I, I do everything from uh, payroll to janitorial work to projections to <laughs> wrangling our crew together and periodically actually get to uh, brew some beer and work on the production side. So. You never taste the beer though, right? You never taste it. Oh, just, never. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Um, and where are you located? We are located in Austin, Texas. Uh, brewery is just east of downtown. We're in kind of a burgeoning, uh, what we call East Austin. Um, we're actually located on 6th Street, which is the street that I think most uh, most visitors to Austin are the most familiar with. But we're on the, the east side of downtown, so we're away from all the shot bars and mm. Um, kind of crazy party area, and we're over in more of the arts district. So lots of warehouse spaces, lots of art studios, 
uh, used to be a lot of manufacturing and um, and now it's being converted into some multi-tenant type spaces, multi-use. Uh, and then we found uh, six years ago, found a really cool warehouse. Um, we're at the end of sixth street, which is kind of a fun thing to say, you know, <laughs> drive, drive east on six until it ends and you'll be there. So. <laughs> That's cool. What's the like overall vibe of your brand of beer? Um, you know, what, what, is there a, a sort of palate flavor or, or what type of beers do you guys make? Yeah, we, you know, I, I always joke with people that, that hops are my favorite of the, the main four ingredients. And so you'll find, I think across all of our beers, we, we really prefer to express hops in a lot of the ways that they haven't been expressed, you know, over the past 15 years, mm-hmm. uh, West Coast IPAs are always known as that kind of big, you know, enamel wrecking uh, punch in the face <laughs> of bitterness. We tend to use hops uh, in different parts of the process that really exhibit more of the flavor aroma. Uh, so even with our traditional lagers, uh, we make a Baltic porter, we do some brown ales, all of those carry some really unique uh, most people don't even identify them as, you know, hop contributions, but uh, citrus and pineapple and tropical fruit and spice. And so all of our beers carry what we call hop forward uh, characteristics, but <laughs> you won't find any of them that are very bitter. Interesting. So so I worked at a brewery for about seven years. Um, and I remember about a few years, and I haven't worked there in probably three years, but I remember back you know, maybe about four years ago that there was kind of a shortage of hops. Is that still going on? Um, is hop still kind of hard to come by? You know, it's, it's interesting. There are, you know, people talk about a glut, people talk about shortages, people talk about this hop crisis. And, you know, if, if you really look down, um, or at least for us upstream to the, the hop growers, the real pressure that they're getting is revolved around maybe like two or three varieties. So like mm. the really popular ones like Amarillo and Citra and Mosaic, which, you know, have, have traditionally been proprietary hops. You have to get, you know, licensed to be able to grow them. So the acreage has been fairly small. Uh, they're beautiful hops, but because there's been some fairly popular nationally distributed beers that have showcased those, you know, everyone falls into this mindset of, wow, well, those are the best hops to use. Mm. So there's absolutely a shortage if you're trying to get Mosaic or Citra. Uh, but there's so many other breeding programs going on right now with hop growers and some really exciting hops that are very readily available um, so there's definitely not, in my opinion, there's not a shortage if you're willing to be creative and actually use, you know, some of your artistic ability to analyze hops that you may not think, uh, are the cool kid hops, uh, <laughs> but there's some really beautiful stuff out there. And, and so that's really where we try to focus is connecting with the growers to really understand, you know, what the, the agronomics of hop growing is. Uh, and that helps us better anticipate uh, there are always going to be shortages with certain varieties, but overall, there's definitely. Uh, I'm, I'm in no way concerned about a hop shortage. Interesting. So, what's your background? A little bit. Where did you grow up? Uh, so, I actually grew up in. Uh, I refer to it as West-ish Texas, um, kind of in the plains of West Texas, a little town called Abilene. Okay. Very small, about 100,000 people. Yeah, I haven't heard of it. Um, so, I'm in Detroit. It, so, yeah, I haven't heard of it. Sorry. It's not really on the way to anything, or <laughs> right. it's not anywhere that you would necessarily. Uh, it's not a destination for me, other than the fact that my, my folks still live there, so I okay. go home to visit every once in a while. Uh, but yeah, I grew up in Abilene. I actually went to school there, and then right after college, I, I spent a year in Austin uh, teaching science. So I was a hmm. seventh grade science teacher. Um, and um, that, that was probably pretty interesting, I bet. Oh, very. <laughs> yes, very. Uh, 11-year-olds are uh, they've got one of the most creative and fascinating minds um, and I love the education side of it. I love teaching. I still feel like most of my job to this day is teaching. Uh, but the, the Texas public education system uh, was in a bit of a, and it still is, in a, in a terrible place in Texas. And so I, as a frustrated you know, 23-year-old, decided I was going to 
uh, give up my teaching career and I moved up to Boulder, Colorado. Uh, and I was at the time I was a, a full-time racing triathlete and cyclist. Hmm. Uh, but I always loved beer. I homebrewed in college mainly because the university I went to, a private university, didn't allow alcohol consumption. So okay. we just decided to make it at home. Uh, <laughs> so we, we didn't have to go out and try to buy it. Um, but when I went to Boulder, I was just blown away at the, you know, even at the, this was in 2003, even then, you know, there were 25 breweries in a town of 90,000 people. Wow. Uh, and when I, I had left Austin, you know, we had three and, and most of them were brew pubs and one production brewery. So really opened my eyes to this interesting kind of at the time I viewed it as like this underground industry of, you know, small warehouses making all their own beer and selling it to the neighborhood. Um, but yeah, after, after a couple of years living in Boulder, uh, racing full time. I moved to Austin in the winter, really with just with the intent of, uh, getting out of the snow so I could keep racing during the winter time and just fell in love with the city all over again uh, and started to see quite a bit of opportunity in Austin as it was growing culturally, very similar to mm -hmm. Boulder, high level of disposable income, really educated, um, educated population, uh, and people that are so just fiercely loyal to local products. Um, so yeah, that was uh, 11 and a half years ago. Never planned on staying here more than the winter, and uh, here, here I am. That's awesome. That's a great story. Uh, so I, I was looking through some of your cans. Uh, are you mostly uh, um, canning and bot like or bottling and canning your, your products, or do you guys have tap rooms and all that stuff for people to come in and drink? So we, you know, across our product line, everything we do is packaged in cans or kegs. Okay. We, uh, right now we're about almost evenly split between the two. Um, when we started out, you know, my, my business model was really focused on packaged beer as opposed to drafts for mm -hmm. restaurants and bars. Right. I really right. wanted to get it out to as many places as I could, get it in front of as many people as possible where they could take it home. Uh, and then we've, over the past four years, have been growing our draft presence. And, and yeah, now we're, we're kind of 50, 50. We do have a few little projects that we'll do barrel aging, um, you know, in, in old spirit barrels and wine barrels. We also have a, a small wild and sour, uh, beer program. And all of those are passed through a bottling line just mm. to, to keep that separated. There's some microbial, uh, contamination, you know, potential with all that stuff. So we like to keep separate equipment for all of it. Uh, but those bottles are very, very limited, you know, maybe a couple hundred cases a year we'll mm. put out. Um, and then, you know, Texas has been uh, in quite an evolution in terms of uh, the regulations uh, on beer. When I first opened the brewery, you were not allowed to sell any beer directly to customers on site at your brewery. You had to give it away for free if you wanted to even have a tasting room. Oh, really? Um, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> very interesting. Yeah. Texas, you know, post prohibition, uh, the distribution lobby basically rewrote the alcoholic beverage code along with the Texas Alcoholic Beverage Commission. And so all of the laws that, you know, that are slowly changing were all very much written in favor of the middle tier and those distributors. So they, they pretty much limited anything that you could do that connected you directly with customers if you weren't going through them. Hmm. Uh, but we, our, our guild, passed, uh, was able to pass legislation in 2013. Uh, now we're able to sell directly to customers at our brewery. We can't sell anything to go. They have to drink it on site. Hmm. So we can't do growlers or kegs or packaged beer right. but we operate a tasting room seven days a week uh it's huge you know huge revenue for us um and ultimately it's a pretty small amount of volume because you know margins are so great when you're making it and selling it on site right uh, so yeah so it's, it's been we we definitely have a huge focus on our tasting room uh, it's pretty wild our breakdown in revenue is about 95 to 5 uh wholesale sales to tap room sales hmm. but or sorry 75 25 on revenue but 95 5 on volume Oh, so, interesting. 
yeah, we pour a tiny amount of beer in our tasting room, but it makes up for, you know, a quarter of our revenue. Wow. 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 That's interesting. Um, so in terms of, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because in Michigan, um, and I've had, a, um, you know, I've done a lot of festivals for bands and I've in um, you know, big shows or whatever. And I've had to work through the, just the regulations of how to get beer on a site. What's the, when you, when you were bringing up regulations, you know, what does distribution look like you in terms of like, you know, can you get your cans to Michigan at some point, or do you have to go through other distributors or, or how far can you actually reach with your product right now? You know, it's funny. It's actually easier for us as Texas breweries to sell out of state than it is to sell (laughs) in state. Makes total sense to me. (laughs) You know, the franchise laws in Texas are, are so intensely protective that, yeah, there's really no way to get out of a distribution agreement once you've signed on without you paying an incredible multiple on you know gross revenue. Wow. Um, so it, it's a lot of vetting, or at least you know anyone who who has a sound mind that owns a brewery and wants to distribute. Uh, we spend a lot of time interviewing all the available distributors, um, and even then, you know, every distributor doesn't just want to take everyone. You know, Texas mm-hmm. is is still very much controlled in terms of you know market. Um, Big beer is dominates Texas. You know, mm. Just a year and a half ago, craft beer made up one percent of the beer that was sold in the state of Texas. Wow! Um, so it's incredible for all of us that started breweries because the potential is just through the roof. Uh, it's wide open. <laughs> yeah. But because of that, you know, our our and we have an incredible distributor here uh, in the Austin area, but. You know, ninety percent of their sales come from Miller Coors, and so you know, even at, even though we're this really cool, popular craft brand, you know, at the end of the day, our distributor has to answer to ninety yeah. percent of their revenue. So it's pretty difficult once you sign a contract to really have much in the way of control over how you know your product is stored, how it's delivered, how it's sold, all those different things. So we, you know, we kind of view we view our wholesalers as an incredible partner for delivery and distribution, but we still have to keep a full-time sales team on staff. We still have to do a lot of servicing in the market. Mm. Uh, and we prefer it that way. Those hands-on relationships are, are what I think, you know, convince and, uh, and at least put a lot of trust into our partners on the, the bar and uh, restaurant right. retail side to continue supporting us, continue buying our beer. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's definitely tough. Whereas, you know, if we want to sell out of state, you know, we could just contact any number of distributors and say, Hey, we'd like to, you know, to talk to you about selling our beer in your state. Uh, we work out a deal where they send a truck down refrigerated truck, mm-hmm. pick up the beer, take it back to, you know, to their state. And, uh, yeah, it's great. Wow. And, you know, we can even, you know, Texas is also really weird in that most industries and in, in a lot of States and craft beer, it's completely legal for a brewery to sell their distribution rights to a distributor, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You build up, you build up through self distribution, you build up your brand, you put value to it. And then if a distributor wants to take that on, then, yeah, you negotiate a price. Well, mm-hmm. that's completely illegal in the state of Texas. <laughs> but what's not illegal is for one distributor to sell distribution rights for a brewery to another distributor. Um, hmm. So, again, just that that interesting, you know, kind of franchise law control. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, if we wanted to sell in Michigan, more than anything, it just comes down to capacity. If we right, right. have enough gear to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's funny. We always joke that. Anytime we get frustrated with distributors, a, a bunch of us as brewers will sit and kind of, you know, vent about this. And we're like, you know, we're just going to start selling in Colorado instead. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Let's just go out of state. That's funny. Uh, so I was reading a little bit on the website about your sustainable brewing practices. Uh, I'd love to chat a little bit about that and how that kind of impacts you, not only just, you know, for the planet, 
but maybe impacts your brand and your decision making, you know, for a new idea that might pop up. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, I'm, I'm glad you said that kind of outside of the planet because that obviously the environmental sustainability component um, is core to what we do, and it's always been part of our guiding principle. Uh, but we're also trying to build a sustainable business and one that you know I always say one that that will outlive me um, mm-hmm. in in whatever form that may be. And we're also trying to provide a sustainable workplace for all of our staff. So right. you know we don't want this to be a place that people just come get an hourly job and. It's a stepping stone for them to go somewhere else. If they do that, that's completely fine. But if someone wants to make a career at Hobson Grand, we want them to be able to do that. So, you know, when I was putting the business plan together, um, I've always been very, uh, you know, I, I try to be a good steward to the environment and a good steward, um, you know, just to, to the community. And so part of our, our philosophy when we opened, we looked at, you know, what are the, the core tenants? What's most important to us? Uh, and we identified the environment, our community, and our industry. Um, and so from day one, we make decisions based on those three components. So if we decide we're going to shift, you know, say a distributor or a new supplier for malted barley or a hop supplier, you know, we go through a series of questions both internally and with them if we move that far, asking them about do you have any environmental certifications? Right. What's your you know, production facility like? How do you treat your employees? What's your recycling program like? Uh, and so we go through those questions, I mean, literally with everything. Sometimes, you know, it feels like we're just exhausting <laughs> to a point. But at the same time, you know, it, it, we're able to, when I make a decision on something, I'm able to go back to my employees and say, here are the reasons why we chose this. Right. You know, it fits in with our philosophy. And so, you know, a couple of things that we've done. I, I've been making dog treats uh, for my dogs for, goodness, 15 years now. <laughs> um, and when I started home brewing. You know, I, I realized I always loved to have my dog out in the garage with me when I'd homebrew. And the minute I would get done with, you know, the mashing process and I'd have all this leftover grain that, you know, ultimately either compost or throw away or um, my dog would always just have her face in this bucket of <laughs> grain just chowing down on it. And so, you know, started wheels turning in my head like, well, how can I reuse this for something? So I started making dog treats. Um, for my dogs out of that spent brewing grain. Uh, and we still do that to this day. We still do that at uh, Hops and Grain. We sell them to a number of accounts around Austin. We sell them in our tasting room. Uh, and that's always been a really fun, uh, fun, just, you know, side project for mm-hmm. us, if you will. Uh, and when I was fundraising for the brewery, I would go out and work farmer's markets in Austin and just sell dog treats, you know, <laughs> and start the conversation that way and then be like, oh, and by the way, you know, we're uh, we're building a brewery right now, just down the street. Right. Uh, it was a, it was a neat conversation starter. Uh, so that was kind of where a lot of it started. And then from there, you know, we knew we wanted to package our product, and so we started looking at cans versus glass. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a huge argument out there about the creation of aluminum versus the creation of a glass bottle, and which is more sustainable. But our approach was always. We know these are going to be in consumers' hands, uh, and we know all of us, at least in Austin, we like to drink outside, we like to go to festivals, we like to go to the Green Belt, we like to backpack and mountain bike, uh, and we like to drink beer in those places. And so when we started analyzing it, it was more about which container is more accessible, one, and which container is more likely to be recycled. Hmm. And so for me, say you and your buddies take you know, a 12-pack of beer out and you're hanging out by the river. And you empty all those beers, and then there's no recycling bin around, but you know there's one you know, a mile and a half up the trail. You're much more likely to crush those aluminum cans, which weigh practically nothing, stick them in your bag, and right. take them to a recycle bin. Whereas the glasses, you know, uh, you're much more likely to, oh, there's a trash can. I'll just throw it in there. Right, you know? right. Um, and so that was kind of on our packaging side. That was a lot of that, uh, that initial environmental sustainability focus. But 
it's also to me i mean it ships easier it takes up less room in a truck it cools down faster uh from a branding standpoint i mean you literally have 360 degrees of branding real estate yeah and so you know adding sustainability to your business um by making it more visible uh, and so you know cans were a huge piece of that just from an industry standpoint they're a better container. Uh, they let no light in at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of those spoilage mechanisms that you know beer is always susceptible to oxygen and, and light. You know it's much more um, limited with an aluminum can versus a bottle. So that was kind of a big a big decision making process for us because aluminum cans are much more expensive. Um, you know it's definitely not the cheaper route. You have to commit to a lot more. Um, but to us, it, it answered, you know, kind of those three guiding principles. Um, and then we also incorporated a lot of really neat, um, pieces that, that only our employees really get to experience. So we have a bonus program where, uh, every day that one of our employees either rides a bike, walks, takes public transportation to work. Uh, I pay them the price of a premium gallon of gasoline. Oh, that's awesome. So it's kind of my way of saying like, yeah, keep a car off of the road and I'll pay you for the gallon of gas that it would have taken you to get here if you were in a car. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it's, it's not a, a massive bonus, but it's a nice, you know, extra hundred bucks or so on uh, each of your paychecks and for literally just kind of being a little more healthier and a little more responsible. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be sending that one to the brewery I worked at because I worked in downtown Ann Arbor, uh, which is very similar to Austin from, you know, my, my experience, you know, and the amount of parking issues with employees and everybody driving, you know, it's like, why did you guys not just walk here <laughs> or ride a bike? It's downtown Ann Arbor. It's like, yeah, but that's 20, it's like 20 blocks. It's like, it's just 20 blocks, man. It's not that, that far, but that, but, but that's a whole other conversation about my area. Cause everything's freeway and everybody drives. We're motor city, right? It's like, oh, so changing that mindset is just such a, but I, I, I'm definitely going to send this to my, one of my buddies who's the owner of one of these breweries. Cause it's just like. God, that's such a great incentive, you know, and it would actually solve a problem, you know. So it's like, wow, that's a great one. That's really cool. I, I speaking of your branding, man, I love the designs on your cans. Uh, where did your guys' designs start to come from, or how, have you had it around for a long time? Or they're they're really cool looking. I love the way the cans look. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, so we actually about a year before the brewery opened, um, I had been in some dialogue with a, a couple of local graphic design firms in Austin. And just really never hit it off with anyone. Um, and I had run into a guy uh, in Austin at, at a beer festival, honestly. And he was, you know, I was standing behind him in line. And I kept hearing him comment on branding elements of, you know, the brewery that we were standing in line to get a beer from. And so finally, you know, after kind of watching this for a little bit, I just asked him, you know, are, are you a designer by chance? Or he's like, yeah. And, you know, he had, he had done a bunch of work with, he worked for McGarrett Jesse, you know, a fairly well-known uh, design firm that's based here in Austin. And he was in charge of the Shiner uh, rebranding campaign. So mm. when they decided to kind of go a little more throwback to some of their roots, he was in charge of that whole branding campaign for, for Shiner beer. Um, and so that was where the conversation started. And, and we met goodness for, I want to say at least eight months. Uh, and he would just ask me questions mm. about, you know, my background, about my interest in beer, about what I thought about all kinds of different things before he ever produced any branding elements. Um, and it just it blew me away for somebody to take that much time and energy uh, before even starting to design anything to figure out who I was. Yeah. Uh, and since then, you know, he's he is our in-house designer. He's one of the owners in the brewery. Mm. Um, and everything that he produces is just it's been incredible. Like we don't really go through rounds of edits. It's right. Right. He presents it to me. And I'm just like, wow. All right. Yeah. It's like when I look That's at him, great. 
I I get this like seventies vibe of touch, but not. But then I don't. I don't know. It's like it flips because I'm always like, yeah, that's old school. But then it's I don't know. But then there's like a modern spin on it that I can't really explain. So I'm definitely gonna have my listeners up when I put some pictures up of them, so my listeners can see them or go to the website and stuff. Because yeah, I, I I don't know. What is your vibe on them? Do you see the seventies vibe? Little touch of that. Little old throwback. Yeah. That, and that was really, you know, when, when we got towards the, the end of the dialogue process and we started to really put stuff together, I mean, what I told him is, like, I want Hops and Grain to be a brand that you see on the shelf and you feel like you should know it, even if it's your first time ever seeing it. Yeah. So it incorporates this old school beer branding, these elements that feel very familiar if you've ever been around beer. But then you look at it a little deeper and you're like, wow, it's got some really unique, modern, yeah. you know, kind of components to it. So, yeah, no, that's exa- that was exactly where... It's funny. Uh, trying to go with that so yeah very cool well, well just right there that's a great graphic design guy because <laughs> yeah. he's he's doing his job so let's flip a little bit into why we're actually why i actually reached out because um so i found you on we funder that you were doing an equity crowdfunding campaign and obviously equity crowdfunding is new and i found it awesome that you guys are early in on that sort of this new wave of fundraising right for, for a product so what did you go on we funder and what was the goal for the money that you raised yeah, so we, you know, uh, just kind of to start with a story on WeFunder, they approached me, I guess it's been now nine months ago, mm-hmm. uh, and they were, you know, they, they had been working very closely with uh, the SEC, after, you know, basically yep. the four years that it took the SEC to put together this regulation crowdfunding after the Jobs Act was signed, and they had been doing a lot of Regulation D uh, fundraising. So, you know, the accredited investor-only type of fundraisers for a lot of early-stage tech companies uh, on the West Coast. Right. And they were, they were at the time, they were the only approved uh, regulation crowdfunding portal that the SEC uh, had, had given authorization to. Right, yep. And they were hoping to launch, you know, on May 16th, that was the date that it went live. Yep. They were trying to find 20 companies that were all in different, you know, at least uh, different elements of, of industries uh, that they really thought would be compelling to their investors, but then also have a huge community following so that the potential success for this fundraise would be would be greater. And we've worked in the past with a, a lending group called Able Lending, kind of a non-traditional lender that's based here in Austin. They do some really cool small business lending for basically for people that are not interested in, you know, institutional lenders. Right. Um, and through some <clears throat> of their investors uh, and their connections, we funder and them chatted a little bit and they were like, well, you need to go talk to hops and grain. You know, they're, they're basically maxed out at their current facility. Uh, and they knew that we were at the time, at least looking for what, what's our next step. How are we going to find right. this? Um, and we've always been very <laughs> community focused. You know, we, um, even from our initial, you know, uh, our initial rounds of fundraising, um, you know, I made our initial buy-in pretty low because I wanted, I wanted a lot of people to be a part of it. Right. I mean, obviously there's some headaches involved with having, tons of investors, but for me, they're all walking salespeople, uh, and they're vested in it and they're going to talk to everybody that they know about it. And so from day one, we've really been focused on that. And once I started talking with, uh, with the folks from WeFunder and learned a little bit more about their program, uh, and their company, uh, and then their group of investors, uh, it just made a lot of sense. So then it was like, okay, well, this is a cool, cool way of raising money. I've never been, you know, I, I love the concept of Kickstarter Indiegogo for, art projects for mm-hmm. independent films for you know product specific product launches but i've never been big on using it to raise money just because you need some money exactly you know, yep like yep free t-shirt or whatever you right. know i was i feel like as a business owner we have an obligation to take on the responsibility of running a business and that to me 
uh, you know, nothing against Kickstarter, but that's a little bit more of just like a free money thing. And so I, I liked the responsibility that I felt by going a route that's, yeah, I mean, it is an investment. It's through a similar platform in that we can talk about it on social media. You don't have to be an accredited investor to invest in that. But at the same time, it's an investment. And right. You know, we are regulated by the SEC. We report to the SEC. Um, and so it was a really cool, cool opportunity for us to, to expand. And so we decided uh, we looked around at a couple of markets uh, as well as Austin. And Austin right now is one, it's growing incredibly fast. And with that incredible growth comes massive headaches from a development construction permitting standpoint. Sure. So, I mean, if you want to build something in Austin right now, you're looking at eight months just to get building permits approved. Wow. Uh, and so we started looking at some outlying areas. Uh, and, you know, we're very outdoor focused. We've always, uh, I'm a huge fan of, of the water. Uh, I fly fish all the time, you know, kayak. I've just always loved being around water. But there's a small community just south of Austin called San Marcos. Uh, there's a massive university there, 30 Five or 6,000 students live there, but it's very small. Uh, it's very kind of, kind of hippie and crunchy vibe, uh, fairly young population and it's based right on a river and they are just itching for businesses to come into the city to attract more growth, you know, stimulate the economy. Uh, and so we started talking with some folks in San Marcos and, and found a couple of properties that we really liked and, you know, the pieces just kind of fell together. So we were mm. like, yeah, let's, let's do this. Let's launch it on WeFunder. Um, you know, ideally, we knew we were going to have to go out and find some more capital because we didn't think there was any way that we were going to hit that you know maximum of one million dollars uh, that a company can raise through that type of crowdfunding. Um, so I was thinking, like, yeah, maybe we'll raise a couple hundred thousand dollars, um, right, right, you know, get some people on board, and then we'll have a little more momentum going into discussions with other investors or with you know bank for mm -hmm. uh, for lending. Um, but overnight, we were at like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Uh, it took us less than two months and we hit a million. Um, and so it's definitely, it, it's changed a little bit of our, <laughs> at least our timing, you know, right. and we got 10, 12 months before we get funded. And then, uh, so everything has been very much accelerated. Um, and, and we actually took, there's two options with regulation crowdfunding. You can either sell equity shares or you can raise debt. Mm -hmm. uh, the debt raise is a, basically a secured loan. Um, and it, it's almost like a, a promissory note in a lot of ways hmm. uh, because the it's not a, a you know a, there's not an, a set interest rate you don't make a monthly payment it's a debt payment that you pay back once a year and it's based on gross revenue so it's a nice security net for an investor who you know wants to get their money paid back right and for a business like mine I don't have to sell any actual equity to raise ah, this money. right right so, you know it added value to our current shareholders because they're now you know owners in two facilities um, we have a debt obligation, but that debt obligation is based on revenue. So, um, it'll fluctuate each year. Um, and I, you know, I think a lot of, of that was why we were able to raise it so quickly. I think, you know, if you go the equity route through crowdfunding, uh, it's an interesting investment vehicle, um, called a safe security for future equity. Mm -hmm. uh, so basically like it, it doesn't exercise until you sell the company. Right. And, you know, that was not a, an immediate plan of mine. And so anybody that, you know, wanted to invest that way, I mean, you know, the potential for us being acquired is there, but, you know, realistically, it may be 10 years before anything like that sure, happened. Sure, sure. Um, so we decided to go the debt route. Um, and it was great. You know, we, uh, it, it took a lot of time getting it together. I think the SEC was just not completely, um, they didn't have their, their processes scaled to accommodate what was coming. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then same thing from WeFunder. You know, they, they hit a few roadblocks, I think more SEC related than anything. But overall, it was an incredibly smooth process. We've got a, a, a really enthusiastic group of backers. Uh, like 80% of them are within 50 miles of Austin. Oh, that's awesome. Which, which was really cool to see that, you know, we've, we've already touched them in some way or another. And this was kind of them voting with their pocketbook, uh, but not at the, the cash register at the grocery right, store. Right. Actually, you know, um, really backing us. So yeah, it was it was a, it's, it's been a, a great process. So so leading up to the campaign, um, so you know I've run a hundreds hundreds of kickstarters, and most of my work is always prior to launch, meaning outreach and social media and all that stuff. And so what did you guys have to do, you know, in terms of marketing, for, for lack of a better term, prior to launch? Did you guys have a plan in place? We did, yeah. We um, about a, a little over a year ago, I, I brought on a full time uh, marketing manager. Uh, she had been with Whole Foods for a number of years. I uh, was leading their marketing team here in Austin, uh, and we had always kind of just internally, uh, you know, myself. I was handling all of our social media, and it was just getting to the point where it, it became like a full time job that I didn't have the bandwidth to cover. Um, and so we brought her in uh, a little over a year ago, and, and she's done incredible things for our community outreach through social in you know, all of our digital advertising and then also just events that we throw on site mm. uh, and so when we started that dialogue her and I sat down for quite a few hours just talking about like how are we going to want to maximize on the you know 16,000 or so followers we have on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook uh, our newsletter channels uh, and then just you know the general media contacts that we have in Austin like right. how are we going to make this such that we're getting the word out there but we're also not acting desperate, you know, Uh, that was a big piece. You know, we're not a startup. We're a five-year-old company uh, who's looking to expand. And so really dialing in our message of, we want you to be a part of what we're doing and help us, you know, grow into the next phase because sure, we could find money from institutional lenders and investors, but we want you to be a bigger part of the community that you've helped us build. Um, And so, you know, over Goodness, I mean, it must have been a month and a half that we put together this plan. Um, and you can't advertise anything until it goes live. So there's all kinds of SEC rules yep. around what you can and can't say online. Uh, you can't discuss the terms of the deal through social media. It has to be directed back to the, the fundraising portal. So we, you know, we, we had to take all those things into account. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was incredibly valuable for us to, to go through that exercise of asking ourselves, like, one, why are we doing this? You know, and it's not just to make more beer because we need we need a bigger purpose than just making more beer. Sure. Uh, yep. Who got us to this point, and how do we connect with those people in a way that invites them in? And you know, like I said, doesn't sound desperate. Um, and I really think w- without that, I think there's no way we would have been as successful as we were um, because we we got that message out quick. Uh, people got on board, and the nice thing about that big, you know, influx of investment right off the bat is that people started feeling this urgency of like, well, if, if mm. I don't invest now, I'm not going to make it in. Uh, that, um, wow. That's, it, that's funny. That's very similar to Kickstarter. It's that momentum, you know, yeah. you, you know, you've got to build that audience somehow before with whatever the regulations are, or whatever you got to go through. But if you get that momentum, that's that people feel like, oh my God, I gotta, if I don't do it right now, I'm going to lose right. out. That's interesting that, yeah. that, that you saw that same sort of Strategy. You know what's also interesting that popped in my brain is where did you see most of your investors come from? I mean, eighty people fairly local, for lack of better, term, you know, that's awesome. But did you see people coming from all over the place, or where was the traffic kind of coming from through WeFunder? Yeah, we did. We we had a, a huge reception uh, in, in investment that came from the the crowd that 
you know, as part of the WeFunder uh, program that mm-hmm. has been investing in, you know, tech companies. And they've got some 350 people that, uh, you know, that are in their network of investors. Uh, and so they actually get that information before we were even sending it out to any of our uh, mm. contacts. Interesting. And so that that was where it's funny when we look at the you know the zip code breakdown of where everyone comes from. There's a bunch in like Silicon Valley uh, and around uh, you know some Los Angeles and some in San Diego, uh, and then the bulk of the rest of it is all right around Austin. Um, and so we and. I, I'm sorry if I said 80 people. I meant 80%. Oh, 80%. Our, sorry. We had six, yeah, 600 backers, and 80% of those were, um, like, yeah, 50 mile radius of Austin. Wow. Um, and that's you know it's cool too because that's that's as far and wide as we currently distribute our product. So, you know, we're going to sell close to 100,000 cases this year within 50 miles of Austin. Um, and so it was it's it's been kind of neat to see the investors follow basically our. Kind yeah. of our, our sales uh, footprint. Yeah, you're. Well, I mean, I don't think you could be more laser beam focused in yeah. terms of yeah, of, no, of, exactly. of your investors. That is, that's fascinating. Wow, that, that really really blew my mind a little bit on that. So I so uh, you know so the money comes in. You know, you guys are are done fundraising right now, right? So what are the right. next steps? Uh, what are you guys working on then? Now is it just getting that building going? Permits? What does it look like right now? Yeah, yeah. So it it took about eight weeks for all of the investments to actually fund, you know, to us. Um, so there was a lot of, again, that, that was some of the, I think, scaling that the yeah. SEC wasn't really ready for. But uh, so we've been over the past month, we, we've uh, locked down a space, um, got a letter of intent signed, uh, working with landlord and architects and engineers right now to, to get all of our plans together to submit to the city of San Marcos. Um, but we'll be, I mean, you know, it took us 12 months to build a brewery in Austin. Uh, and that was with, you know, quite a few delays from a permitting standpoint. Uh, when we first broke the news, I got a call from the city planner in San Marcos asking me if there was anything he could do for us, which mm. was just a total, yeah, <laughs> total 180 from Austin. Um, and so we're pretty confident that we'll be built out uh, and making beer in 12 months. Um, so one, yeah, once we got the lease signed, I mean, it's just it's been uh, hitting the ground running while also you know operating a, a brewery at capacity in Austin. So it's. Uh, it's been a whirlwind, but um, I always joke that you know if if I could find a job where all I do is just build breweries, I think it's the happiest <laughs> I could ever be because you learn so much every single time, and you're like, ah, I won't do that again, right? Uh, and now I finally have that chance to do it again. So it's yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun uh, getting all those plans together, and yeah, we should start uh, all the demo work is done in the building, and we should start putting up walls and uh, utilities and equipment will be arriving in about four months. Um, so yeah, it's all happening pretty fast now. That's awesome. That that is awesome. So when that's when that's online, you know, completely and running, what does that do for the for the your entire brand in terms of expanding and scaling? What what starts to happen because of this? Yeah. So it you know just purely from a you know a production capacity standpoint, it's going to give us right now we have about twelve thousand barrels of production capacity. So um, I know you know this, but for your mm-hmm. readers, thirty one gallons uh, in in one barrel of beer. Uh, and San Marcos will have capacity for a little over 20,000. Okay. Um, so it'll yeah. you know, basically triple our overall capacity. Um, we are building a second tasting room at that facility as well. Uh, and we're putting in a kind of an event space. We get a lot of inquiries for wedding receptions hmm. and private parties. And, you know, only having one tap room that's open seven days a week. Uh, it's fairly limiting for us to be able to really um, capitalize on those opportunities. And so San Marcos will also have that. 
Um, and it's, you know, we've been so just strapped to try to keep up with our core brands. We haven't really been able to innovate uh, and introduce some of the more experimental lines of beer that we've really wanted to, uh, and then grow on some of the, you know, the barrel aging. Uh, so we'll be able to take some of the strain off of our Austin facility, um, move a lot of our core production down to San Marcos and then, uh, you know, continue to innovate in Austin, um, try to stay ahead of, you know, customers want something new every time they drink a beer <laughs> and as much as, as much as a frustration that that can be for a brewer. Um, it's also a cool opportunity when you actually have the capacity and resources to, to get kind of quirky and crazy and, uh, uh, and make, yeah, make some stuff that otherwise wouldn't really make financial sense when you're, you have a beer that sells nonstop and you can't keep up. Right, right, right. The wind and doing something weird doesn't really work out. So that'll, that'll really help us just continue down that path. We're, investing even more money into our lab uh, we have a really robust lab that we operate uh here in austin and have for four and a half years now and so we're going to be able to bring in some really cool pieces of equipment that you know having a science background that i've always been anxious but we haven't really had uh, the you know the funds in austin mm. to to make that happen so yeah so it's, it's opening up a lot of doors for us uh it's also opening up some really great growth opportunities for our management team uh, as they start, you know, having opportunities to manage multiple facilities, right. opportunity for their own growth, uh, you know, building their their careers here at Hops and Grain. So, I think across the board, you know, we have a lot of customers that drive into Austin from those outlying communities. They're all excited because they won't have to drive as far, and some of them can even just ride their bikes over to the new brewery. Um, and then, yeah, just continuing down that uh, that path for consistency, quality, and innovation. That's awesome. So, would do you envision, without getting the cart before the horse, do you envision going equity crowdfunding again for you know the next big idea that might that might pop up? You know, I I will definitely say, and it's funny, WeFunder has been asking me the same thing. Um, I absolutely, you know, I think uh, it's I'm having to hold myself back from doing it for another project. You know, we've got a it's funny, we have a warehouse uh, on about six acres of land just outside of Austin, and and we got it because it was incredibly cheap, and we needed space to store empty pallets of cans and cardboard and mm-hmm. you know, all of our packaging supplies. And our goal long-term was to move uh, all of our barrel aging, wild and sour beers, all of those, those oak projects yeah. out to that facility. Hmm. Um, and so we, yeah, we, we may be over the next six to eight months um, launching another campaign for, uh, for that facility. Um, it's nice, you know, the way the SEC uh, put that together, it's that $1 million, you know, maximum per 12 months is, entity based and so you know for us each of our facilities the license is held by a a different entity but the entities are controlled by the same parent company gotcha Um, so it gives us the ability to you know to raise a little bit more than that um for the parent company but it's entity based so we can uh we don't have to wait another 12 months Um, that's cool so yeah we we will definitely i don't know how soon it's going to happen but we will absolutely uh utilize that platform again because it was just it was such a breath of fresh air and um, and no way do I ex- expect the next one to be as successful as the first right. one, but you know. Well, I mean, you got to be feeling just great that the people that came out, right? That that your your current work for marketing and all that stuff, that the people when you asked them, you know, they stepped up to the plate and and yeah. uh, and got your new brewery. Well, Josh, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Uh, this was a great, great conversation, man. I, I, you know, really cool brand. And the next time I'm in South by, because I go down there sometimes for some music stuff. Uh, yeah. I will be swinging in. So. Awesome. Well, please do. I, yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Cool. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Josh. Absolutely. Thank you. Cheers.